Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Hilde, as always, great to see you, and thank you so much. Today on Backstage at Upstage, two incredibly inspiring women, Jill Feldman and Ivy Elkins. Both of these ladies are leaders in a grassroots, patient-driven community dedicated exclusively to changing EGFR positive lung cancer into a manageable chronic disease. EGFR, or the Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, is a protein that drives cells to survive, proliferate, and spread. Our guest will be talking all about this and the impact that it has on patients. Be sure to check out their website, egfrcancer.org, for much more. And now the conversation is on. Hildy, take it away. Welcome, everybody. I'm so um, delighted this morning to have two wonderful women join Jordan and myself, Ivy Elkins and and Jill uh, Feldman. Jill has been with us once before on an earlier podcast, so I hope you'll tune in to that podcast, which was called This Podcast Could Save Your Life, and it could, so make sure you take a listen. They're here today to talk about an organization that they started um, called EGFR Resistors, and so I'm really interested in our listeners having a sense of who are the people who have lung cancer. There's a lot of stigma and uh, associations, but we have two beautiful women with us who um, I'd love you to tell your stories. Thank you uh, for having us, Hilde. So I my story is a little bit different than most people because I have a family history of lung cancer. Um, I lost my dad and two grandparents to the disease when I was 13. And then my mom and my aunt when I was in my 20s. And at the time, there wasn't a lung cancer walk, support group, organization. There wasn't a lung cancer community at all. And I always say coincidence or fate, the first organization in the country dedicated to lung cancer was founded in my community and I got involved. The other control I had was to be my own advocate because of my family history. I had started getting periodic scans at 27 when my mom was diagnosed. And I would do them every three years. And then I probably, I think I was 35 when they found a, what they called a ground glass nodule. It meant it was a hazy, not solid nodule. And even though I was so involved in advocacy in the lung cancer world, for some reason, I. I wasn't nervous, uh, but we watched it for about three and a half years. And at that point, it had taken a turn and turned solid and had grown and become more aggressive. And so that was in 2009. I was 39 years old. My kids were six, eight, 10, and 12. And I was diagnosed with the same disease that, you know, took both my mom and dad. It was really surreal. Um, I was diagnosed with non-small cell 
lung cancer and adenocarcinoma. At the time, they were bio, doing biomarker testing, but for only two mutations. One was called KRAS and one was called EGFR. And that was when I found out, first found out that I was EGFR positive. In 2009 as well, lung cancer research was moving in the right direction, but, and they were testing for those two biomarkers, but there wasn't even a first-line therapy approved for EGFR positive lung cancer at the time. So that was 13 years ago, and the world of lung cancer, the landscape of research has changed dramatically, thankfully. Thank you, Jill. Quite a story. It's really something to hear about lung cancer appearing in people's families, how children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews think about looking after themselves or following up on whether it's, it, it makes sense to get some screening. So I think this is a very important piece of information to people who, um, I know there have been other stories where people's scans have been questionable and then they get put off for actually years. And then at that point, it's advanced stage. So that's just something else maybe we could think about together or talk about. So I'd love to also hear Ivy Elkin's story. Ivy? Thanks, Hildy. And Again, thanks for having us on your podcast today. My story is very different from Jill's because unlike Jill, I didn't have any connection with lung cancer and in fact, didn't even think of lung cancer as something that I would ever be diagnosed with. And what happened for me was when I, I was 47 years old with married two kids, also 10 and 13 years old, and I just started having some problems with my right elbow. I couldn't completely straighten it. It hurt. And the left side of my neck was bothering me also. So I didn't really think much of it initially, but as it didn't get better, I went to my primary care physician who, um, you know, we talked and pretty much decided that it was very likely to be from overuse of my computer, sitting in a weird position, that type of thing. So I did some physical therapy, which didn't really help. So over a six month period, I kind of went from doctor to doctor. I went to an orthopedist. I had cortisone shots in my elbow. I did more physical therapy. I went to a rheumatologist to see if it was rheumatoid arthritis. Nothing really, you know, ended up getting resolved and it wasn't going away, which was odd at my age. So I finally had an MRI of my elbow done that showed that there was a mass that had eaten away some of the joint bone. And, you know, that was the cause of the pain. And no one knew at that point exactly what that mass was. So I went to an orthopedic oncologist who did a biopsy. Actually, initially, before he even did the biopsy, he took one look at me and said, you're young, you're healthy. I don't think this is, I think this is a benign growth, you know, but we'll do a biopsy and just make sure. Well, the biopsy came back 
not benign, malignant for a type of cancer called adenocarcinoma. And when he told me that, he told me that that meant that it didn't originate in the bone. It came from somewhere else in my body. So, you know, I asked him, so adenocarcinoma, where does it come from? And he told me it could come from the lung or the breast. So I was sure I had breast cancer at that point. But I next had a PET scan to actually really figure out where it was coming from. And it turned out that I had a mass in my lungs that had spread to these locations, you know, the the elbow, my neck, I had metastases from the original mass in my lungs. And I had a few other bone metastases as well. And upon a full workup, I also had eight lesions, small lesions in my brain. So I went from, you know, an elbow and a neck that hurt a little bit, not even that horrible, to this stage four, fairly widely metastatic lung cancer. And, you know, I felt pretty good. I didn't have a cough or a wheeze or, you know, shortness of breath or anything like that. So it was a total, total shock a devastating shock to me and my family because I just, you know, didn't know then what I know now is that anyone with lungs can have, can get lung cancer. And I also didn't know that there were different types of lung cancer and different treatments for different types of lung cancer. So luckily, you know, living in the Chicago area, I was connected very early on after being diagnosed with Jill, actually. And we lived near each other, had a number of mutual friends, but had never actually met. And Jill kind of got me on the phone and did a lung cancer 101 for me (laughs) so that I knew what questions to ask. I knew all, you know, this information about advocacy groups. She even helped me get an appointment with the oncologist, the thoracic oncologist, you know, I still go to eight years, you know, eight years later in love. So, you know, that was incredibly helpful for me. And then I, you know, upon getting my um, biomarker testing results back, which were done automatically in the hospital that I went to, Major Medical Academic Center. I found out that I also, like Jill, had an EGFR mutation. But so this was actually, so this was 2013. And at that point, there were still not that many mutations that were tested for. It was just ALK, EGFR, and KRAS. So just one more that, you know, then Jill had had, you know, what was it, four or five years earlier, the huge, huge explosion in biomarkers and precision medicine has really happened since, you know, my diagnosis, you know, up till the present time. So, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of changes in lung cancer recently. Part of what's so um, amazing about your story is that it really emphasizes the fact that you don't have to have a cough. You don't have to be, 
you know, um, all of the symptoms you might expect with lung cancer don't have to be present. In fact, none of them can be present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what's so unusual. I Again, I've spoken to other people whose lung cancer started because they had a pain in their hip. And it's like, who would think a pain in your hip would lead to lung cancer? So that's not to alarm everyone in in our audience that if your nails chip this afternoon, you know, you've got a serious situation. But it does mean, you know, lung cancer, as you say, could happen to anyone. If you have lungs, it could happen to you. And if you have some situation that does not seem to be healing or getting better, it's worth just having that that question in mind for your for your physician. But I also, so I was diagnosed at the absolute smack dab end of 2006, and mine was found just by accident. So I didn't even have a complaint to go after. I just slipped on a, a new pair of shoes. This whole crazy story is on our Upstage Lung Cancer website. Anyway, that slipping on that threshold with the new shoes led to a bunch of kind of silly mishaps and, uh, you know, somebody saying, oh, I think it's your wrist, but I don't do wrists. I only do elbows. So go see somebody else who, you know, maybe who could test for nerve damage. And so they did the wrong test. If anything had changed along the way, it would have been terrible. So I'm grateful for all the mishaps. I'm also you know, grateful for all the misguided, uh, you know, thoughts. And it took a while, too, for me, which was I had MRI, I had PET scan. Um, Because I was so lucky um, that these wonderful shoes saved my life, um, it was super-duper early. And so I was able to um, discover this at uh, stage 1A and only had surgery. I have a question for all of you, and I'll start with Hilde. You think that doctors, medical professionals who are not oncologists, are getting wiser to this idea of let's not just take something for granted? Or is it still a major issue in terms of diagnoses? Well, I don't know what the two of you would have to say. I just wanted to add one point to the end of my story, which was at upstage lung cancer... Um, one of our our taglines is, you know, survival should not be by accident. So it's about mm-hmm. finding right. it early and diagnosing what it is. As you say, there are different types, and then finding the right treatments for those things. For the most part, there's no doctor, and it's not it's not a physician's fault. There's no doctor who would have a patient come in and say, "I've got my elbows bothering me, and I can't seem to straighten out." Who would say, "Maybe you have lung cancer." Yeah. You know, there's no one who would begin in that path. So that, again, speaks to, at Upstage Lung Cancer, one of our major missions is to fund early detection research where we can find something like to breathe on a card or to use some saliva that maybe you could go to the CVS like you would for any other diabetes test or COVID test or pregnancy test, pick it up, breathe or use it with urine, whatever, and it could, it right then and there could tell you whether or not you have lung cancer, and then you could pursue it early, 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 where you have any kind of question. But if you just had a little cough, again, it's the same thing. Most doctors will not start with a suspicion of lung cancer. You have a cough, oh, it's probably allergies. Let's do that. That's another few months, you know. Um, oh, it's not allergies, or yeah, you have a few allergies, but it's still not going away. Ivy, what do you think? I completely agree. I mean, given the way um, lung cancer screening guidelines are currently, there is no way that I would have qualified for that. 
So, you know, that wasn't an option to catch my lung cancer earlier. And I, you know, I don't think any of the doctors or physical therapists I saw really did anything wrong because they were usually pretty quick to pass me on to someone else and say, you know, this just doesn't seem to be working. I don't know what it is. There were a couple of times along the way that I sort of doubted myself though. You know, I started thinking, well, you know, is this just, am I overreacting? Is this something that, you know, my husband said to me, well, you know, I have trouble with my knee. Maybe you're just going to have trouble with your elbow, you know? And I started wondering, you know, whether I should just stop going to all these doctors. And I think that's the hard thing. And, you know, you mentioned this, Hildy, where you said you have to kind of like trust your, your body and your gut. Like you really have to, you know, sometimes just trust your instinct. Like I felt like, you know, something was wrong and I didn't, you know, give up until I figured out what it was. And if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So that's kind of the scary thing with lung cancer is that since you don't have, you know, those nerve endings in your lungs, and if you don't, you know, have an accident or qualify for screening, you just don't know until it's already at you know, a late stage. And you get to that late stage, it's really important to get the right diagnosis and get on treatment, you know, relatively quickly to prevent, you know, things from, you know, going that fast. So I was also fortunate, even though it, you know, was already stage four, that, you know, I was able to get diagnosed and get biomarker testing quickly because of where I live and the, you know, the medical center I went to, but that's not necessarily necessarily the case everywhere. You know, as I mentioned a little earlier, uh, when I got involved in advocacy 20 years ago, there wasn't a lung cancer community at all. So there was no awareness. There, the, the way that I guess the, the world of medicine works is doctors have to be kept up on research. And with the pace that lung cancer research has accelerated and advanced, it is really, really hard for doctors to be kept up on research. And unfortunately, that's still, um, you know, what you guys are talking about in terms of not having symptoms in lung, in the lungs, lung cancer was always called the invisible disease. And a lot of people thought it was called the invisible disease because no one paid attention to it or gave it funding. But really, in the oncology world, they called it the invisible disease because it was so hard to detect. And usually it wasn't found in the lung first. It was a headache or a hip or elbow. So I think, you know, there's still that belief in many doctor with many doctors that, you know, they think of lung cancer, they think of nihilism, they think of the only risk factor is a person has a smoking history. And so again, they we want them to be updated on research, but then part of it is it's not necessarily their fault. And I think that's one thing that we're really working on in the advocacy world, especially when it comes to screening is 
the primary care physicians have to be educated. Right. We have to, you know, let them know, uh, you know, kind of there's a rise in young people, especially women. These are some of the ways they could be diagnosed. And so there's so much pressure on these doctors. They have to see X amount of patients a day. They have to keep up with EHR, um, electronic health records. And I think, you know, I one of the things that I think about, my daughter's doctor uh, had mentioned this one time. He said, you know, we're so trained to check things off a list when there are symptoms and that's when we miss the invisible gorilla. You know, there's that theory, the invisible gorilla. So, yeah, so, you know, you go to your primary care physician and he's checking things or she's checking things. They're checking things off lists as you tell them your symptoms. And so one of the things that I think is really important you both mentioned is that you trust your gut. There is a type of headache that's a headache, and then there is a headache. And I can tell you as someone who has had COVID, it is a different headache. And that's what people say when they've had brain metastases and that's their symptom. So it really does uh, boil down to um, you trusting your gut, knowing when something's wrong and pushing and advocating. But again, within the world of advocacy, I think you know, the most important thing is for us to continue to educate primary care physicians, pulmonologists, and doctors that uh, people would visit for, you know, the not typical symptoms or the symptoms you would think you would have. Well, you mentioned something important also, and that is there is screening available. There may be people in our audience who fit into this this uh, guideline and help me out because I'm not sure I have the absolute last minute you know notion about who fits into it. But you have to be over 50 years old, and 50 you have to 77. 50 to 77, and you have to have smoked for they call it pack years. So if you smoke one pack a day for 20 years, or you could smoke two packs a day for 10 years. So that's kind of how they calculate it. And one of the other uh, criteria is you had to have quit within the last 15 years. And so these guidelines just changed and from 2013. So they are better, but again, they're, the criteria they're basing it on there's two factors involved. And so it's your smoking history and your age. Again, we're really trying to push um, for the guidelines to be broadened and for ways to test people who were exposed to radon or have family history. Um, and that a lot of people are working on that. But the screening right now, yes, is very important for people to know who are eligible because right now, like 4% of people who are eligible get screened. 
And so it's about helping to educate again, primary care physicians and you know their support staff to work with their patients that are eligible and help them with going through and navigating that process. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, upstage lung cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hilde. I don't know what your thoughts are, Ivy, but, you know, there's another element to it. One is, yes, those those guidelines have to be broadened. And, and so with push and effort, hopefully they will be continually broadened. You know, it's always jaw-dropping how few people take advantage of those that screening. But I also think that fits with the horrible, uh, electrifying words, lung cancer. So I don't know, Ivy, what your thoughts are, but I would think that there are people who might be in that ballpark who say, well, I don't have any symptoms. And yes, I'm 55 and smoked for 30 years, uh, you know, two packs a day. And I know I'm eligible, but I don't have any symptoms. So I'm not going to go and try why would I look for lung cancer when I don't need to? That's just one of my concerns. What, what are your thoughts, Ivy? I think there's a lot of fear in the community, too, that if they do go for screening, if they know about the screening and they decide, you know, to go for the screening, they're, they're, I think people are afraid that there really isn't any treatment for them. You know, like Jill mentioned before, there has been a huge advance in treatment, you know, very recently. But, you know, when I was diagnosed in 2013, I also thought that there was very little treatment for lung cancer. And I thought that the only treatment was traditional IV chemotherapy. So I think people don't know. So they're afraid to get, they're afraid to get screening because they're afraid to be diagnosed because they honestly feel like if they're diagnosed with lung cancer, that's it. And they don't necessarily realize that if they're diagnosed early, they could have surgery, they could have radiation, they have a much better chance of being cured of that specific lung cancer. I mean, yes, there you know, might be a higher chance of it coming back. But the earlier that someone gets diagnosed, the the better chance they have of, you know, getting an excellent treatment. And there is a wide variety of different types of treatments. Which brings us to the point with an EGFR, uh, you know, finding an EGFR mutation. There are specific uh, treatments or types of treatments that have been developed since both of you were diagnosed, and me too, diagnosed. Jill, do you want to say a little bit about maybe targeted therapies, what that means, or precision medicine, what that means? Yes, sure. Uh, so what uh, with lung cancer, 
again, not that long ago, there were only three treatment options. And as there were advancements in technology and science, what they started discovering was that not all lung cancers were the same. And this was, I would say about 20 years ago, this was the beginning of precision medicine. 2004 is actually when EGFR was described, but so it was the beginning of precision medicine and in all cancers actually. And what it means, it means the right treatment for the right person at the right time. And what they use with precision medicine a lot is personalized medicine. That's another term or patient centered. And the, the way it looks is the way it's supposed to look is putting the patient in the center and then everything is kind of organized around the patient. And so it starts with you being diagnosed, them looking at whether, you know, the biopsy, the cancer that they took to look at, and they look, they do what's called biomarker testing. And Ivy and I both mentioned not that long ago, they were only testing for a few. Now they have what's called next generation sequencing, NGS, and they test for an array of different biomarkers and they could be mutations. They have all these different terms that they use, mutations, insertion, fusions, or it could be, you know, a pro, uh, your PDL one. And I think you don't need to understand that. I think what you need to take out of that is if there is information found in the biomarker test, testing, uh, there, that means that there's some kind of ab abnormality that is most likely causing the cancer. It's driving the cancer to grow. And so once they look, figure that out, then there are now FDA approved targeted treatments to treat these specific types of cancer. So for instance, um, you know, some of the most common, I would say, biomarkers in lung cancer right now are EGFR or ELK or ROS1 or BRAF in MET. I could go on and on, as you guys know, but these are different biomarkers. And then within each of those, you could have different types of EGFR. You could have different types of ELP. So it's really been complex and, compl and complicated to keep up with the advancements and treat patients. And so I think, again, one of the most important things about that is that the patient needs to understand their diagnosis as well and if they're going to be able to advocate for themselves and so then that's how the egfr resistors was got started within the community 
there, the Ross Wonders and ALK had already started a organization. So in 2017, we founded the patient group, the EGFR resistors. And what our purpose is, is twofold. And I'll let Ivy get into detail because I don't want to talk this whole time. But again, I, you know, there's nothing like finding a community, right? Who understands and knows that you have the lived experience that, you know, others do. And so finding, having online social media really has been, you know, to our advantage in this setting. And so we have a closed Facebook group where people could go for, to, for support, to share best practices, and that's life-changing. But we also, part of our purpose is to accelerate research, which as you know, can be life-saving. So I can let Ivy talk a little bit more about the EGFR resistors. Ivy, what are your thoughts about all this? I'd like to add a few comments about biomarker testing. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I had biomarker testing automatically when I was diagnosed, but in many places that isn't an automatic process. So one of the most important things anyone needs to know now if they're diagnosed with lung cancer is to make sure they get biomarker testing. And not only in um, later stages, there are clinical trials and even an FDA approval for treatment that's, that's based on your biomarker designation in early stage as well. So if you go to an oncologist and they don't mention biomarker testing, that is something that you need to ask for or get a second opinion. And it's also really important to understand that, you know, with biomarker testing, it takes a little while to get those results back. And unless you are highly, highly symptomatic and need to get on a treatment immediately, you know, it's often good to wait though that week or a couple of weeks before all those results come back so that you can get on the treatment that is the most precisely correct for your situation right up front, you know, the best possible treatment. And, you know, that's very, very important because there are things that happen if you, that could happen if you get put on an incorrect treatment, you know, before the one that's better and it might not lead to the best in, you know, outcomes for you. So I wanted to mention that because, you know, biomarker testing has really been critical to drive my whole treatment trajectory and for many other people in the EGFR community. And I think that, you know, everyone needs to know that. I just wanted to add that when we talked about to, we mentioned all the different, you know, types of biomarkers that someone can have. They don't all have a targeted therapy. They don't. So it is also important at that point to talk to your doctor about clinical trials. If there is not 
a targeted therapy for your specific uh, you know, biomarker that was found because there are a lot of clinical trials with different biomarkers that do not have approved targeted therapy right now. Also, I think one thing that probably stands out to the listeners today about all three of us is that we all have a voice and we all are using our voice to advocate not just for ourselves in our own you know, our own health journeys, but for for everyone else who um, is diagnosed with lung cancer and cancer. So um, it's really important if your physician says, oh, you don't need to have these biomarker testing. Um, you know, we can, we've, we've got other ways of treating it. Try not to just take that. I mean, unless the explanation is so very clear why that is not a good idea for you. And it could be because um, your particular biomarker is not, there is no medication right now for you. But advocate for yourself to try to, to understand why not and why whatever choice they're making is what's best in your case. I'm so thrilled with today, and I feel like we've only just begun. There's so much more to talk about. So I'm going to say this is the first in a series of discussions of EGFR and other mutations and patients who are experiencing uh, these mutations and uh, driving their own treatments with their physicians toward um, good health. I hope you both are in great health. I, I'm so grateful for you. I know Jordan is too. Very much. Yeah. So um, much love to you both. And this is to be continued. I, I want to hear more about what projects you guys are doing and all kinds of stuff. So stay tuned, audience. May I just say one thing? We're recording this on Valentine's Day and you three are beautiful ladies. Thanks Aww. for making it a very good broadcast. I mean, Thank you. I'm surrounded by beauty. I can't help but say that. And, and we cannot forget your beauty also, Jordan. So yes, there we course. are. On a different plane. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. To be continued. Sounds good. Thank you yeah. so much for having thank us. You so, yes. Thank you so much for having us. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.